as we have been working our way through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we had known for a period of time that God had established Elisha to be Elijah's successor. Last week, we saw how God wonderfully enabled Elisha to be Elijah's successor by giving Elisha a double portion of the Holy Spirit that was at work in Elisha. Remember, it was said that if Elisha would see Elijah taken up into heaven, that indeed that second portion would be given to him, and it was. Today, we consider how various people respond to Elisha's leadership. There are three separate vignettes in our text that reveal various responses to Elisha's leadership. So we're going to look at all three of those vignettes to look at the various responses that people had to this new leadership of Elijah. So just how did they respond and what can we learn from their response? Well, the first response was that of the sons of the prophets at Jericho. And their response was to question Elisha's leadership. They recognized that God had done a work in the life of Elisha. Look at verse 15. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So they knew that God had done a work, and they knew that Elisha was indeed the one that was to succeed Elijah. And they showed an outward respect and allegiance to Elisha, for it tells us at the end of verse 2, and they came to meet him, bowed to the ground before him. So they showed him respect, they showed him commitment, they were ready to follow him. However, they failed to fully understand the significance of Elijah's being taken up into heaven, and so now they're going to question Elisha. They wanted to do a search for Elijah, verse 16. They said to him, Behold, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It's not clear if they were looking for Elijah to be alive or whether they are requesting to look for his dead body. It tells us in verse 16, their reasoning, it says it may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain into some valley. I think that they were looking for Elijah to still be alive. Elijah had disappeared on other occasions when God had whisked him away to hide him from his oppressors. And remember back when Elijah and Obadiah came into contact and Obadiah was to arrange a meeting between Elijah and Ahab. And Obadiah was reluctant to do so, for he was afraid that the Holy Spirit would whisk Elijah away and would not allow him to go to that meeting. First Kings 18, 12, Eliab's words are, and as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you where I know not where. So there was this anticipation. It was not actually that unusual 
for Elijah to be taken off the scene. Now, certainly this was a very unusual manner of this uh, chariots of fire uh, taking him up into heaven, but you can understand where they may have been coming from. Perhaps the prophets thought that something like that had occurred. Elisha knew better, and he realized that it would be futile to look for Elijah, who had been taken up to heaven, and so he appropriately denied their request. Verse 16, last statement, he said, you shall not send. No, that's a waste of time. We're not going to be looking for Elijah. However, the sons of the prophets would not take no for an answer. They thought that Elisha's response was wrong. Verse 17, but when they urged him till he was ashamed. Now that's a a very striking statement. They urged him until he was ashamed. They, They persisted and they persisted and they persisted and it resulted in his being ashamed, embarrassed. One might wonder why. Well, perhaps it was a reproach. Perhaps his reluctance was viewed as a fault. It was a mistake. And perhaps he even began to doubt himself as to whether or not that request should have been granted. The accusation may have been Elisha was uncaring or disrespectful to Elijah's memory. Why in the world can't we go and look for this dead body? What would be wrong with that? Why aren't you interested in respecting and honoring the memory of Elijah? Or perhaps if Elisha is still alive, excuse me, Elijah is still alive, perhaps they're saying that Elisha is afraid that Elijah is going to be discovered and then his position is going to be taken from him. And so this is a power action on Elisha's part in refusing to let him go. Whatever the reasoning, whether they are questioning Elisha's wisdom or his motives, it becomes to be an embarrassment. And so Elisha eventually gives into their request. Verse 17. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, send. He said, send. Of course, they do not find the body. Verse 17. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And Elisha was proven to be right. Verse 18. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did not I say to you, do not go? So as we look at this first vignette, and we look at this questioning of Elisha's wisdom, I want to to note some important things. First, here we see the humility of Elisha in not demanding his own way. This must have been difficult for Elisha, or his leadership to be questioned. You know, Elisha was there when Elijah was taken up into heaven. The sons 
of the prophets weren't there. And that simple fact works in two opposite directions. For Elisha, he knows what he saw. He's very keenly aware of what God is doing, namely taking Elisha, excuse me, Elijah alive up into heaven. He gets it. The sons of the prophets weren't there. They don't see it. They hear the account from Elisha, and so they don't fully comprehend. And rather than simply say, well, we're not there, you were, we'll take your word for it, they're not ready to take his word for it, and so they're demanding to go and look. And so, eventually, he gives in and says, okay, go look. And, of course, they look, and they don't find him. So I submit to you that there is here a rather striking humility on the part of Elisha not to demand allegiance, not to say doggedly, you can't go. It was not going to be the end of the world to spend three days looking for Elijah's body and to find out it's not there. It satisfied everyone. There was a lot of wisdom on Elisha's part in allowing that search to take place. And one of the benefits of allowing that search to take place was it proved that Elisha was right. It proved that the body wasn't to be found. So actually, through the search, Elisha increases in respect for now they find that his word is true. Did I not tell you? Don't go. There's an important lesson to be learned here about respecting those in leadership. First, respect comes with an office. Just by sheer being in a place of leadership, there's a certain amount of respect that should be given. And I would submit to you they showed that respect when they first met him and they bowed before him and demonstrated their allegiance. There's a second element of respect, and that is respect is earned. On the one hand, it's given. And on the other hand, it's earned. People who are in places of authority have to gain people's respect. They have to prove themselves worthy of that respect. And in these three vignettes, we are seeing that God is proving Elisha to be worthy of respect as a prophet. God is authenticating the ministry of Elisha. Respect is earned over time as one is able to observe another person's being responsible, faithful, and wise in the exercise of their duty. So respect grows over a period of time for those that are worthy of respect. Throughout this passage, God is showing and demonstrating the worthiness of Elisha to be respected as a prophet. The second response is the men of Jericho. They look to Elisha for help. 
They bring a, a difficult situation to Elisha in verse 19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. One wonders why they did not approach Elijah about this problem and waited until it was Elisha's turn for them to to bring this up, for which I have no answer. The fact is, they did not approach Elijah, and they did approach Elisha about this problem of the water being bad and the land being unfruitful around the city of Jericho. We need to get a little background here to this, this story. And we need to understand that the cause of the problem is a curse that God had placed on the city of Jericho. In biblical history, Jericho was the first Canaanite city that God's people conquered when they entered the promised land. They marched around the city seven times, blowing their trumpets for seven days, and the walls came tumbling down in Joshua chapter 5. The city was conquered and ultimately destroyed at the command of God. Joshua 6.24 says, And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. So the city was in complete ruins. The walls were flattened. And the city was never to be rebuilt. It was to be a lasting memorial to God's power and his conquering ability to bring to ruins this incredibly fortified city. So in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, we read this. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. Whoever rises up and builds that city is going to be accursed. The curse involved the death of the children of the one who would build this city. uh, Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Now I'll read the whole verse. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So this curse was... Whoever was going to be responsible for rebuilding the city of Jericho, their oldest son would die when the foundation was laid, and then the next son was going to die when the gates were established to demonstrate the reality of this curse. Well, during the reign of Ahab, the city was eventually rebuilt by Hael, and Joshua's curse came true which was not very long before Elisha began his ministry. 1 Kings 16.34 In his days, that's Ahab's days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, 
and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. So this prophecy, this curse, was fulfilled. And evidently, the new inhabitants were experiencing the curse as well. For now, back to our text, 2 Kings 2.19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation in the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. The word for unfruitful here in the Hebrew is literally the word to miscarriage. Have a miscarriage. And so the uh, commentators believe that what is being said is that uh, the land is not producing, and probably the animals and uh, also the, the women are miscarrying. And we will see that when we look at the remedy. We find out that Elisha is going to remedy this situation, verses 20 and 21. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt into it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So here is this aspect of this, this miscarriage. The remedy is symbolic in nature. The salt is a symbol of purity and restoration. The salt is also a symbol of the covenant. However, the symbol is not what is of utmost importance. It wasn't the salt that brought about this healing. It was simply a symbol. The operative healing agent is God, not the salt. Notice verse 21. Then he went to the spring of water, threw the salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. It's God's instantaneous act that brought healing to the water. The impurities of the water were removed that were causing these miscarriages. So don't get hung up on the salt. It's God who's purifying the water. It's God who is removing this curse. It is God who is demonstrating grace and forgiveness to a rebellious people. For now they are coming to Elisha for help. They're coming to Elisha for deliverance. So God in his grace grants them that help and grants them that deliverance. The takeaway is that what Elisha said came to pass. Notice verse 22. So the water had been healed to this day. And notice these words. According to the word that Elisha spoke. According to the word that Elisha spoke. What is common in these vignettes is that Elisha is a prophet of God. Elisha is speaking for God. You can believe Elisha's word. What he says is going to come to pass, which is ultimately the role of a prophet and what you should expect from a prophet. When he said it's futile to go look for that body, it was futile to go look for that body. When he said the waters are healed, the waters were healed. These are vignettes to reveal that what Elisha says comes to pass, for he is truly a prophet of God. So 
again, repeatedly, the accounts of the word of Elisha being accomplished, which is the primary role of a prophet. Secondly, we see the power of God displayed. And thirdly, we see the grace of God manifested to those who come to Elisha. All of that's important to keep in mind as we look at this third vignette, this third response to Elisha. So now we have a great contrast, this third response. It's the response of the boys of Bethel. They totally rejected and mocked Elisha's leadership. So the third response is to totally respect, uh, excuse me, totally disrespect, reject Elisha's leadership. Second Kings 2 Kings 2.23. 23. He, that is Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. There are a number of things that we need to work through as we approach this text. First, who were these boys, and how old were they? A lot of people like to spend a lot of time conjecturing on how old these boys are, and uh, some commentators place them as young as 10 or 12, while others see them in their upper teens. I'm not going to go through all the the Hebrew and all the nuances to try to answer that question because at the end it's unanswerable. It has a lot to do with how you understand the word small in verse 23, where it says, he went up to Bethlehem while he was going on the way, some small boys. What are we to understand by the word small? The Hebrew has the same range of meanings as our English word small has. Uh, They are very common in that regard. Same range of meanings. That is, small could refer to young. Small could refer to stature, being short. Small could be used in the sense of small as opposed to great. And in that sense, here are boys that are coming who have no place, no prominence, no authority, and yet they are rejecting one of great authority. Or small can mean trite, impudent, such as we might say a person is small, as opposed to a person who is big. A big person is a person who will forgive. A big person is gracious. A big person rises above situations. A small person is a person who is petty, who is self-indulgent. So this word small could easily be a play on words in the Hebrew. All to say, we don't know exactly how old these, these boys are. But what we want to focus on is what we know for sure. First, they were at least old enough to have gone outside of the city on their own. Verse 23. Some small boys came out of the city. So here are these these boys, whatever age they are, and they are leaving the city and coming out to accost Elisha. Secondly, we know that they're a gang. There is a mob of these boys that are 
coming out against Elisha. We know that there's at least 42 of them, for it tells us in the end of verse 24, and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. So there's at least 42, and the implication is there were more, that they weren't all torn or mauled by these bears. So could there have been 50? Could there have been 100? I don't know. But there's a gang of these boys that are gathered together to come out and to poke fun at and reject Elisha. We know that they were old enough to know better, for God held them accountable for their words and their actions. Ultimately, it's God who does this. And so God is in agreement with what is taking place. And lastly, we know that they were from a wicked city who had numerous prophets sent to it, and they were repeatedly rebuffed. Bethel was the city that was first set up for this false worship after the the kingdom was divided. And there were many different events that took place at Bethel where different prophets were sent to repudiate various aspects of the false worship. I'm not going to trace all those this morning. But we should keep in mind, since we look at uh, this city of Jericho being rebuilt, the first Kings 16.34 says this, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. It's interesting that Hiel, this one who is responsible for building the city of Jericho and this curse coming, is from the city of Bethel. Bethel is bad news. Bethel is bad news. And these boys, whatever age they are, are a product of what's going on in the city. They're a product of their parents. They are a product of the false worship. They are the recipients of all the evil that is taking place in that city. And 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 16 says this, concerning those that continually reject the truth of God's word. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. So there is this warning about mocking, rejecting the prophets of God when they are repeatedly sent to a city. Bethel was deserving of that warning. They were the poster child for a city that was accustomed to mocking and rejecting the prophets of God. So most importantly, we know that they rejected and treated Elisha with contempt and disrespect. For it tells us in verse 23 that he went up from there to Bethel and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and now these words, and jeered at him. They jeered at him. They mocked him, saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. 
Two things I want you to notice. First, they mocked his appearance, referring to him as a baldy. You bald head, you bald head. And it is obvious, like so many, that they placed an extremely high value on one's outward appearance. This tells us what was important to these boys, how they assessed worth and value in others. We had learned weeks and months ago when God established David as a king that people look on outward appearance, God looks upon the heart. So here is living proof of people looking on the outward appearance and looking at him as being bald. Hair was very important in the culture. Hair was a sign of wisdom, sign of strength, a sign of power. Remember Samson and his long hair. There are many different allusions in the Old Testament. Absalom was admired and seen worthy to be a king because of his physical appearance. And special note is mentioned of his hair. Listen to 2 Samuel 14, 25 and 26. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of <coughs> excuse me, for at the end of every year he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, two hundred shekels by the king's weight. Full head of hair. And remember, ultimately, that he's going to be caught by his hair uh, in the uh, woods when he's trying to get away. The point is, the point is that hair was viewed as commendable. Here is this bald-headed prophet who doesn't look like a prophet, who doesn't, isn't seen to be a prophet. What should have been important to these boys was not, namely the fact that the Spirit of God rested upon Elisha. But it's more than that. It's much more than that. For they not only mocked Elisha, but they also mocked Elisha's God. They made fun of that which should have been sacred and viewed with awe. They weren't just mocking Elisha's appearance. They were mocking Elisha's relationship to God. For notice verse 23. The boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, the last line, go up, you bald head, go up. What are they saying when they said go up? If you look at verse 23, in the beginning it says, he went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on his way, some small 
boys came out of the city and said, go up, you bald head, go up. Were they simply saying, continue on your way, don't stop by our city, we don't want you here. Well, that's one way to read it, but I don't think that's the way we would understand it. Rather, what we are to see is that they were mocking Elijah's being taken up into heaven. Look at verse 11. And as they went on and talked, behold, the chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Went up is the same Hebrew as verse 23, when they said, go up, go up. All of the Hebrew is the same, just like it is in English. It's go up, go up. But I think it's pretty clear that what they are saying to Elisha is, in mockery, go up like Elijah did. Go up like he did. That is, leave us. That is, die. That is, go away. And it's to mock what happened to Elijah. They weren't afraid by any means. They were simply rejecting. But it's not just about Elisha. It's their perception of God and the miracles that he had performed. Not just the taking up Elisha into heaven, There's the crossing of the Jordan on dry ground. There's the waters of Jericho that have just been healed. And now here are these young boys coming out and mocking this prophet of God. As a result, a curse comes upon these boys, verse 24. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. One of the reasons I wanted to look at these three vignettes together is to try to gain a picture of Elisha. And as we are going to look at the life of Elisha, we don't find a man who is petty. We don't find a man who is short-tempered. And we don't find a man who is vindictive. As we work our way through the life of Elisha, we're going to see he's a man of grace, repeatedly forgiving individuals, particularly bringing a message of restoration of grace. We don't find him being short-tempered or acting rashly. So as we think about this curse, it isn't just a guy flying off a handle because he's irritated by these boys that are poking fun of him. But rather, it's a justifiable curse that is being brought in the arrogance of these boys to totally reject not only Elisha, but Elisha's God. And so they are mauled by these bears. Verse 24 And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. 
How badly were they mauled? I don't know. I don't know. But it's obvious that this curse that was pronounced came to pass. Which is the ultimate takeaway. What Elisha said came to pass. He spoke for God. And as such, he should be respected. As such, he should be gone to for direction and guidance. And as such, he should be feared. For to reject Elisha was to reject God. What we want to see in this third vignette is that when the boys made fun of and rejected Elisha's leadership, it was to their own harm and detriment. They didn't bring harm to Elisha. And Elisha was never in danger. They brought harm to themselves. In rejecting the grace of God, rejecting those that God gives to you as leaders is harmful to those who reject that leadership, to those who reject that word, to those who reject that teaching of the scriptures. To reject the one that God has placed in authority is to one's own harm and detriment. Secondly, when the boys made fun of and rejected Elisha's leadership, they weren't just rejecting Elisha, they were rejecting God. For God was the one who gave him a double portion of his spirit. It was God who had chosen him to be a prophet. It was God who enabled Elisha to do all of these miracles. So it's not just about the person, but it's about God. Thirdly, it teaches us the severity, the importance of ridiculing and mocking God's servants. You know, as we read this passage, I think the natural tendency is for people to, to kind of shake their heads and say, isn't this kind of an overkill? Isn't this, a, isn't this an overreach? I mean, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? You know, shouldn't it just kind of been ignored that these boys went and, and said these particular things? And so we, we feel that somehow there's injustice here. Somehow there's something wrong here. Something we, we just don't feel real comfortable with. Just shows us how quickly we are ready to embrace the mocking and the jesting over spiritual things. Over things that are to be revered and awed and respected. And we see it so broadly in our society. Christians are becoming a laughing stock. But it's not just Christians. God's word is becoming a laughing stock. People are mocking the word of God. They, they are mocking the very person of God.
And ultimately, that's not going to be tolerated. Ultimately, God is going to bring judgment for every idle word that is spoken. So we should take it to heart. to Realize that to speak against the things of God is to speak against God himself. It's an affront to God's holiness and his character. So in conclusion, four main points. First, this morning we have seen just the sampling of responses that the people had to Elisha. We're going to see more responses in the, the weeks that lie ahead. But the obvious takeaway is that we need to be careful about the responses that we have to those that, that God places in a leadership position and those that uh, God is going to place in this transition to be our leader in the future. We need to guard our hearts in the way in which we respond to that particular individual. First, to keep in mind there's a tendency to question the wisdom of a new leader. There's a tendency to begin with a sense of reservation. Remember that respect is a two-way street. On the one hand, it needs to be given. We need to, to believe that God places those in authority that are over us, and so we need to show them respect. On the other hand, we also need to realize that respect is earned. It's, it accrues over a period of time. We need patience. We need to see God at work in the life of an individual. We need to see how God blesses the work, how God blesses the word. We need to see the faithfulness of an individual. That's appropriate. There's nothing wrong with that. And so it's important for those that are in leadership that they demonstrate patience <laughs> and, and they don't demand a certain level of respect that they're beyond being questioned. They are beyond being approachable. Elijah was not. He listened to the people and he was willing to give in even when he knew better because he knew it wasn't life-shakingly important. The truth would be known, and as a result, the respect grew. Respect grew. So there needs to be a patience on both sides, those in leadership, those that are not. Secondly, we're to see that there are blessings to be had in following the leadership that God provides. The men of the city of Jericho almost instantaneously accepted Elisha as a prophet. And they went to him and they said, we got a problem. We've got a, a city that's a beautiful city, but the water's bad and it's creating miscarriages. Our, our children are dying. We don't know what to do about it. So they come to God's prophet. 
God prophet tells them what to do and brings healing to the city. And the miscarriages end because they experience the grace of God. We see that there's a real blessing to be had when we come in humility and expect God to use his leaders for our good and our benefit. Thirdly, we see that there are hardships that are experienced when God's leaders are not respected. It is to one's own harm when we fail to consider God at work. And and I begin there because that's where it all starts, to see God at work. You You can't separate the events that take place in 2 Kings chapter 2 from the long history of God dealing with the city of Bethel. You have to see a progression. You have to see a a wickedness that is so ingrained. This hatred is passed on from generation to generation into these younger boys, young men, whatever they were. How they adopted the, the same attitude of ridicule and rejection of the prophets that they had seen and witnessed. You know, kids sitting around a dinner table hear what their parents say about the church. Kids sitting in the back seat of the car hear what people say about the message. They hear the conversations that take place between mom and dad about the elders. That can either be a really incredibly positive influence or it can be a negative influence. It can develop a heart of appreciation or it can develop a heart of rebellion. These boys are a product of their city. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. Showing the the proper respect, not for an individual, but ultimately for God and for his work. Because God was doing a great thing. And we're going to see that Elisha is greatly, greatly used of God. May God be with us, and may God help us to bring him glory in the way in which we respond to his work and activity in our midst. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray for your grace. We pray for your strength. We pray for your wisdom, even as the search committee had asked for wisdom as they meet tomorrow night. Lord, be with them. Lord, be with us. Be with our hearts. Uh, our attitudes, our response to your spirits working in our midst. Oh, Lord, give us a sense of trust. Give us a sense of confidence in you. Lord, you have a purpose. Lord, you have a will. Lord, you are sovereign. Lord, help us to look to you.
And may our search committee ultimately look to you for that which you are doing, that which you are providing, that which your spirit is accomplishing. And may we give you glory and praise for all that you are doing, will do. Help us, Lord. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.